Now, if I had to guess what is the most recognizable verse in the Bible, uh, I, I think it's a pretty educated guess, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, it's a, a verse that perhaps uh, you've seen, you know, at sporting events, people in the end zone holding up John 3.16. Um, I think one of the reasons that it's such a popular verse is because it is a very simple, it's easy to memorize and remember, and it's very su- a succinct summary of the gospel, at least the ramifications of the gospel. Now, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine posted a number of photos where you know, someone had edited the text of John 3.16 to better re- reflect the, the theological positions of particular denominations. And I got a kick out of them. I, I hope you do too. You know, like, why is he showing me this stuff? So this is uh, how a Calvinist would read John 3.16. For God so loved the elect that he gave his only son that the elect should not per- perish but have eternal life. And, and you know, these, these, there's a little bit of perhaps mocking. I just want to throw this. I hope no one's offended in this. It's all in good fun. I'm Reformed, so I I hold to some of Calvin's stuff. Here's how Catholics might read John 3.16. For Mary so loved the world that she gave her only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How about about Baptists, for all you Baptists out there? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever is once saved will always be saved, even if they are unrepentant apostates. How about Pentecostals? All you Pentecostals in the room. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but speak in tongues. You all know how much I love the prosperity gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not suffer and never have any problems. Evangelicals. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever prays this prayer after me should not perish but have eternal life. And my favorite, right, because we are a non-denominational church. Maybe we, we could almost say like multi-denominational because we come from many traditions. And so this is, this is my perspective. Uh, we don't have a stance on this, right? <laughs> so there you go. So John 3.16, it, it's a part of a broader text of Scripture. And a lot of times we like to cite this as if it occurs in a vacuum, but it's part of a longer a portion of Scripture. And in that portion of Scripture... There's another Bible phrase that is used a lot, especially in in the evangelical church. A lot of times you find it in Baptist or Pentecostal churches. uh, And it's a phrase, born again. And there have been times when this title of born again has been used to separate different classes of Christians. And so this morning, I want to take a deeper dive into this concept And answer this question, what does it mean to be born again? And hopefully we see a little bit of a link between being born again and this John 3.16 kind of summary of the gospel. Now this may be a a concept that is new for you. Or it might be something that, you know, you've been in the church long enough that you're pretty familiar with it. But regardless of your background, I hope that there will be something that all of us can take away from this morning to better understand and engage our faith in Jesus Christ. So if you want to open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3, Bible apps, whatever, or just listen to me read, sometimes I find it helpful to have, see those words on a page, but we'll read the first half of the chapter. And you know, one of the things that we need to be careful of as Christians in the 21st century is there's a lot of language that we use that feels very foreign 
to someone outside of the church. We have these like cliches that make total sense because we've been, you know, enculturated by them. We've been kind of steeping in that. But someone on the outside is like, what? What are you talking about? And and this idea of born again, as we're going to see in this text, is another one of those elements that for the culture that Jesus was in was kind of like, what do you mean? So let's read along. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. God answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I feel like there's an SNL skit about that. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, real quick aside, you see, if you're reading the ESV, there's a little footnote there, and it says that you is plural. And interesting enough, there's the you is plural in a couple of other places as well. I think it's in verse 12. Now, I haven't quite figured out why that's the case, that he switches between the singular you and the plural you, but I I bet there's something in there. Anyway, let's get back to this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So let's get some background to the text. By this point in time in the Gospel of John, Jesus, he has This is early on in his ministry, right? We're only three chapters in. He's been baptized. He's called his disciples. He's turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. He drove out the money changers in the temple courts. Again, that happens in the other gospels at the end. It's possible he did it twice, or John is just reorganizing the material, not chronologically. I'm not entirely, no one's entirely sure. But the point is, up until this point in time, he has started making a name for himself. He's, he's been you know, raising the curiosity of the religiously, religious elite in the region. And so enter Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was part of the, the, a member of the Jewish ruling class. This is a guy who had political and religious influence. And he was intrigued. He wanted to investigate a bit, bit more about this guy named Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 2. It states that he approached Jesus by night. Right? He's going to Jesus in secret. 
So while he wanted to examine Jesus a bit more, he doesn't want to make a spectacle of it, right? If this Jesus guy turns out to be some nutcase, he wants plausible deniability. I don't know, Your Honor. I, I never met this man before in my life. But he approaches Jesus and he calls him rabbi, their word for teacher. He says, we know that you've come from God. Now, how does Nicodemus and whoever else the we is that he's speaking to know this? Jesus' authority has been evidenced by the signs that Jesus has worked. The only way this guy can be doing this is if, he, he has, if he's, in, he's got it in with God in some way. Now, verse 3, Jesus answers him. He didn't really ask a question, but Jesus responds and says this phrase that I want to focus on. Unless you are born again, you are not able to see the kingdom of God. There's a connection here between verse 3 and this quintessential passage that we started with, verse 16. Now, what we read in verse 16 is, is kind of that ultimate goal right, of, of eternal life. And, and I've shared a number of times that I think modern Christianity it will at times focus a bit too much on that future-oriented dying and going to heaven side of faith. Right? And that's good, that's important, but putting too much weight on that reality causes us at times to miss the work that God is doing uh, in the right here and right now. Right? Je- Jesus said in, in, later on in John that he came so that we might have life, that we might live abundantly, right? live in the now with that kind of newness and freedom of life. But again, with that aside, right, let's get back and see the connection. So eternal life, believing in the Son, is kind of that, that ultimate goal. Now, just before that, in verses 14 and 15, we see a a few inferences of previously biblical material. Again, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you're going to miss this. Verse 14 references a pretty wild story involving snake bites and the healing that, that the Hebrew people experienced through this literal bronze serpent on a pole that was lifted up. Again, I'm not going to detail it, but that's in Numbers 21 if you want to go find it and read it yourself. John 3.13 references that this, this person, right? So 14 says that it's the Son of Man that must be lifted up. John 13 tells us a little bit more about the identity of that Son of Man. It's a title, right? Son of Man doesn't mean human. A, a lot of times uh, people think that it, it just is a, another name for a human. But Son of Man, as we read it in the New Testament, is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Go back and read it, right? The, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, and alongside of the Ancient days of Days, there is one like a son of man who is given authority, who comes riding in on the clouds. It's very clearly that Jesus is claiming that divine, right? It's a divine person given authority by God, the Ancient of Days, the Father. And Jesus is claiming that title for himself. And, and these references are meant to root the authority of Jesus as the Messiah, right, in these stories of the Jewish tradition, right? They're important because they give us the identity of the Son that we are instructed to believe in in John 3.16. But it doesn't aid us in what does it mean for us to be born again. God displayed his love to the world by giving his Son, right? God so loved the world. It doesn't mean like God loved it so much. That's not what so means. It means in this way. This is how God showed his love to the world, that giving his Son, that any who believed in him would receive eternal life. Now, in the New Testament, belief is more than just intellectually understanding or intellectually agreeing. It's not just about having the right knowledge, 
It's not just about having the right facts. Belief is better replaced with a word that we use like faith or trust. Right? It's putting trust in those facts. Belief in the New Testament is a reordering of our lives under this new framework. It's acknowledging the work of God, it's seeing his kingdom, and it's submitting ourselves under that new reality. And so here's the connection between these two verses. What John 3, 3 tells us is that the only way to participate in that kingdom of God, the only way to even see it, is to be born again. So if we want to believe in the Son and receive that gift of eternal life, we need to have experienced that born again. We need to be born again to bridge that gap, to even get to the point of belief. Again, not just intellectual, not just agreeing, but of putting our faith in. Now, when Jesus tells this to Nicodemus, he's kind of like, huh? What do you mean? He's struggling to wrap his mind around what Jesus has said. And this is important because the word that, the, the, the important word in this verse is the word again. Because it's a, Greek, it's a word in the Greek language that has multiple meanings. Now, the most common understanding is what our Bible translates it as. Again, this is the assumption that Nicodemus has. He's trying to hash out with Jesus, right? What do you mean being born again? How is a person, right? Physically, he's talking about the repetition of that physical birth. How do we get back into our mother's wombs and go through that birthing process again? It is not possible. What you say, Jesus, is impossible. But the word can also mean from above. In fact, I think the ESV might actually have a footnote about that in there in verse 3. And in the verses that follow, this is what Jesus clarifies that he's talking about. That he's not talking about the repetition of our physical birth, but that in order to see the kingdom of God, that we must receive a spiritual birth, a birth from above that comes down from God. Jesus is clear that having access to the kingdom of God cannot just be attained through personal improvement, but that it's an entirely new work of God and originates from God. So before we can believe, i.e. put our trust in Jesus, we need a work of God from above to open our eyes to that reality. Now, this fits with what the Bible teaches at other places, what theologians call regeneration. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit where God changes our hearts, changes our behavior. Maybe the behaviors is more sanctification. I would say changes our hearts, kind of the place where things begin, as Jesus talks about in the Gospels. Starts to change that so that we can acknowledge this new reality, to see God more clearly. Right, take the promise of God through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, right? Because many of us have these hearts of stones that are calloused and, 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 and hardened. Then God takes that away and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Sometimes that's all one fell swoop, but usually what's more common, I think, is it's a more of a gradual process where we can see more and more of God, and I'll get to that in a minute. These are, you know, regeneration is this process where our hearts of stone, our hearts that are in conflict or at the very least kind of indifference towards God, are reshaped into hearts that desire God, hearts that acknowledge God and live under his authority, 
Now, different traditions have, you know, uh, different, uh, they disagree on to when precisely this occurs. Some traditions suggest that regeneration takes place after we've put our faith in Jesus. I personally come from a tradition that believes that regeneration precedes belief. The order, I mean, it is important, but the reality is they call it the order salutis, the order of salvation. The point is that theologians, what they agree on is it all happens very fast, right? That, that, that they're in very short succession. So in some sense, be- before or after, uh, it, it's not the most important question in that. The fact that it happens, I think, is more important. Right? Being born again, as we see from the text, originates from God. R- literally, you have to be born from above, and it transforms our hearts, It's a crucial part of the process in which we experience salvation. And let me throw out two more quick verses that I think highlight that that there's this sudden change that exists. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, not the whole thing, just selections. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins that you once walked. You were dead, not breathing, devoid of life. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with with which he loved us, even while we were dead, made us alive in Christ. Again, divine comes from above. It shows that difference of, of what we were and what, what we are. Also, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Right? Both of those passages highlight the stark difference in our old life, the life that was dead, that was blind to the movement of God with what it means to be born again, to be to come alive in the spirit of Christ, to be a new creation. So to try to give, I guess, the best as I can, a kind of a one-line or two-sentence answer to the question I posed, what does it mean to be born again? And I would say being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit to bring transformation and newness of spiritual life to us. I would continue that it draws us closer to God and gives us further insight to God's work in the world and in us. I think that's what it means to be born again, trying to take all this this data that we just read in the text and pulled from other places and try to kind of bring it together, process it together. Now, usually when we use this term born again, it's a label that's attached to someone who has made an initial profession of faith, and it is definitely that. But personally, and I will say this, this is my little asterisk here, I don't have explicit biblical support to what I say next, so take it with a grain of salt, but I think that this idea of a newness of spiritual birth, being born again, is something that we can experience more than once. That we can have multiple rebirths in the Holy Spirit through the course of our walk with God. Right in verse 5 of our text in John 3, Jesus says that we must be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, there, there are some traditions that would call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus and come to faith, we are given the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit dwells within us immediately as a sign and seal of God's work in us, right? Uh, the book of Ephesians tells us that, right? That the seal is that sign. It's the down payment, right? The, the guarantee that God is going to make good on his promises, But there are also times when we may experience an additional filling, an additional baptism, an additional immersion in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that's pretty abstract, so I want to try to make it a little bit more concrete. I want to share from you a little bit of my own spiritual journey. 
In the process, in my process of faith, there have been seasons where I've grown and seasons where I've been kind of, you ever have that experience where you feel like you're plateauing a bit? You're not like walking away from faith, but there's kind of a, you find yourself in a little bit of a rut. But then, in my own experience, I would have some type of experience with God that seemed to skyrocket that growth or bring me up to at least what I feel like almost seems like another tier of intimacy with God, bringing greater clarity to my faith. Now, this has happened numerous times, but there are four really specific distinct seasons, distinct, distinct moments that when I reflect on the, the, I don't know, a couple decades of faith that I can point to and say, God, like, you were doing something special there from above. This isn't just me reading a book and kind of like earning more knowledge, but that God kind of, heaven came down, if you will, in some way. The first was when I was a freshman in high school. My family uh, raised me going to church. Uh, It wasn't really a regular part of my life. My freshman year in high school was the year that my parents told me they were getting a divorce. And the foundation that I had in God crumbled. I believed that God couldn't be good or he couldn't be real if I felt such pain and suffering in that moment. So I rejected him, walked away. Now, a few months later, I had one of the most, probably the most powerful experience of my life. Happened in a church in Somerset, PA. That's not where I grew up, but I was there for a social event with family. I left the gathering in the basement and went up to the sanctuary, and I can still, I mean, gosh, this was uh, two and a half decades ago, and I could still see the, the, this mural that was painted behind the pulpit. It was a town that had weathered a rainstorm, and God's promise of the rainbow was there breaking through the clouds. Now, I, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I knew that God was speaking to me. And he said to me, let me help you with those burdens that you're carrying. Now, I felt what I can only describe as a a really, really strong adrenaline rush enter my body, and I felt physical weight lift. It was the weirdest thing. I felt like pressure was released from my shoulders. I knew in that moment that God had drawn near to me to aid me in my pain, and I vowed in that moment that I would serve him. This is the moment that I look back at and I point to to say that was when I became a Christian. That is where faith started for me. I couldn't articulate anything in the gospel. I didn't pray any, you know, sinner's prayer. I couldn't articulate the gospel. But this was the moment that I knew that God was real and I was following him. Right? This was my born again, if you will, moment as it pertained to faith in God. Now, fast forward about four years, I was in college. You know, I had spent the last four years regularly reading my Bible, uh, but without any kind of community. So I had ingested all of these stories, but I didn't have anyone alongside of me helping them, helping me understand what they meant. I was super judgmental in this phase, right? To me, everything was black and white. If the Bible said it, it was so, it was true, and I was quick, I was real quick to pull specks out of people's eyes while I had logs in my own. But in the season, it was my sophomore year of college, I got involved in a campus ministry organization at my time at Penn State. And this was the first place, the first time that I had a community around me. It helped me understand all and refine all this raw data that I had collected from the Bible. 
this was the first place that I could finally articulate what I believe happened to me four or five years previously, but I didn't have words for. Articulate the gospel. That I could articulate the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and the consequences of that in my life. And in this season, I saw significant spiritual growth as I was mentored in many ways that it clicked. This was, again, another for me. I would identify another born-again moment where I finally understood the gospel. Let's fast forward another four years. I'm now in seminary. I have a strong technical understanding of scripture and theological doctrine, but God opened my heart to receive another kind of leap forward, open up another element of the plan that he has had for the world. My mentor uh, at that time brought me to a lecture by a colleague in seminary named Esau Macaulay. Now Esau, you may have heard of him. He's become pretty popular of late. He's authored a few books. He writes periodically for the New York Times. He's a professor of theology at Wheaton College, Illinois. But, But at this time, he was just a fellow seminarian, a year or two above me. And he shared with all of us at this workshop this new concept to me called systemic racism. That was new to me. I had never, you know, you know how Paul talks about like having his faith moment, the scales falling from his eyes. That was a moment of scales falling from eyes. Another like born again experience. You know, I, I would never have considered myself a racist prior to that, but I was shocked to learn about the experiences of people of color, not just back in the time of slavery or Jim Crow, but the ramifications that they had, that they had to deal with even today. And the church's complicit, at least the American church's complicit part in that process. And what I learned about in this season was God's plan of reconciliation. Not that we ought to become a melting pot in the church where we lose our identities, but one in which, as we see in the book of Revelation, right, that the different tribes and tongues and nations, the cultures come to God and are preserved in some sense, those cultural goods. Those cultural particulars were preserved and honored in the kingdom of God. And so this was the season that God opened my eyes to his reconciliation work. Not just vertically with us, I had gotten that one, but horizontally with others. Here's the last one I'll share. Fast forward another five or six years after that. I encountered this curriculum called Gospel-Centered Life, and this is the first time that the gospel fully clicked. I understood the doctrine of it from before, and mind you, right, that, that, that I had been a Christian for well over a decade by this point. I had been to seminary. I had been trained as a pastor. Even though I knew that Jesus had died to save me, I was still operating out of, of a mode of works righteousness, right, that I had to jump through the right hoops so that God would love me, that if I didn't go through the right hoops or if I failed to pray after a day, that God would be upset with me or maybe he would punish me for a wrong turn. And this is the season where I was unshackled from having to earn God's favor. And I learned the freedom that we have in the gospel. So if we just use my, my life experience, do you see how this has worked in my life, right? So first I kind of have this jump of faith and I'm going for a while and then gospel, right? God gives me more grace to understand the gospel and then reconciliation and then freedom. And he continues to do this for all of us. And sometimes it's, it's very small incremental, but I think there are times that the, we, we have these leaps forwards. And I, and I would argue, I would suggest that these seasons are kind of like born-again movements. 
where my eyes are open and it, it originates from God. Again, the first, of course, was that entry point into faith, but faith is never static for us. And I believe God continues to give us his blessings of additional times where that veil is pulled back and we can see more clearly that we're able to depend upon him more and more. So I'm going to try to bring this home for us. If you are sitting in this room or you're listening online and faith is a new concept for you, maybe you want to know God more fully but you're not sure what that means, or you haven't ever taken the first step. You know, one of the things that's, uh, that, that people use from time to time are the, the ABCs, right? Makes it easy to remember, because each item begins with the first three letters of the alphabet. Right? This process, and again, full disclosure, I wouldn't have been able to articulate any of this when I first came to faith, and I believe that was genuine faith, even though I didn't quite understand what happened. But just so I can give you the, the language for it now. A, it's acknowledging our brokenness. It's like the, the first of the 12 steps. It be, begins by admitting that you have a problem, acknowledging that we're not perfect, what the Bible calls sin. Believe, B, believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died to save us, that that's what the scriptures attest to, right? putting our trust in that. And lastly, C, call on the name of Jesus as Lord, inviting him to have his way, to work within us, to heal our hearts, to reorient our path under his will. Now, sometimes that first step is done in these grand displays, these highly emotional experiences like what I, what I described in my own journey. But sometimes it doesn't appear. You, you know, you go through that and it doesn't appear that anything has changed. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You ever been to a house or like a, a building that was not familiar to you? and there's light switches everywhere, and you flip a light switch. There's lots of them here at this church. You flip it, and you're like, I have no idea what that did, right? Sometimes faith is like that. You flip a switch, and something happened, but you can't identify where it is, right? It did something, but you got to find it, and it takes time for you to see a little bit more clearly how God has been at work through it, because God works through everyone differently. There is no formula to this. When we come to faith in Jesus— we have assurance that he's heard us and that he's working on our behalf, right? If you approach Jesus with a genuine heart, you don't have to worry if it's stuck. Right? You don't have to try it again and again and again just to make sure. But for the rest of us, right, the more veterans, if you will, of faith, I'd actually would suggest the exact same pattern because this doesn't have to be a one-time experience. My hope for us is that we have additional situations where we, where we experience a bit more of that abundant life that Jesus promised, and we have greater clarity of the presence of God. Following these seasons of plateaus, that we would go to God acknowledging our brokenness, that we would continue to believe in Jesus, that he has closed the gap of what I ought to be, what God wants from me, demands of me, if you will, and what I actually am, and calling on him to transform us according to his purposes. Right? Because we're not going to do it by brute force. You're not. You might get there for a little while, but unless the heart changes. And this is what Jesus talked about with the Pharisees. Right? He talks about the heart. Right? That's where it begins. 
You might look polished. You might be a, a cup that's polished on the outside. But unless the inside has been cleansed, you don't want to drink out of that nasty cup. My prayer is that we would have and experience these kind of mini revivals. You know, like I said, what some traditions call baptism of the Holy Spirit in these seasons of life. That we would move with Jesus further up and further into his glory. Right? That we would hold fast to the promises that God makes in Philippians 1 6, that Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. When we consider what does it mean to be born again, I don't want us to think about it as just a static, one time thing. But how can we continue to seek God and experience spiritual rebirth? that comes from above, that originates, so that we can keep moving up that tier, understanding more about who God is and what he's doing in the world. Here are a couple reflection questions as we go this week to to think about it. So I want you to think back over this week, think back over your life of faith. Are there experiences that you can identify where you've experienced that, right? That born again, again, my definition of being born again, this work of the Spirit, not just that one-time place. And it's important. Remembering is important. It's a, there's a large pro- part of remembering in the Hebrew tradition and even our own lives because the reality is there are going to be, even as I was writing this, I was reflecting on, uh, you know, that, that powerful experience I had some 25 years ago. And I'm like, did that really happen? Because like, it seems, it seems kind of outside of like what your normal experience would be. And I fully believe that the enemy wants us to forget those things especially when we have these, those mountaintop experiences with God where the, the clouds part, right? Because if we forget them, then it's just like, oh, maybe I must have imagined that. And it, it, it sucks that joy, and I think it sucks some of the power out of them. So go back and remember some of them. Secondly, and I only have two this week, and this one isn't a question, but you get the drift. Take some time to go through those ABCs, right? Acknowledging our sin, believing in Jesus, and calling on his work of transformation, This is a rhythm that should be a regular part of our life. We should be, this is basically preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, acknowledging that we're broken and going to the place of healing, which is Jesus. Again, it's not just a prayer you pray once to come to faith, but continues to draw us closer and closer to God. Let's, uh, Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we we love you, and we are grateful for your work in our lives. We are grateful that you give us these spiritual rebirths. Lord, when you kind of in a a very meaningful way download these these spiritual realities and truths so that they take root in our lives, that we might be better ambassadors for your kingdom, Lord, that we might be better secure in our assurance of faith that you have given us. Lord, may, may our conversation and our rhythm with the Holy Spirit not be static, but be dynamic. That we're always going to you in prayer and looking for you to just give us those, those inch, inches forward or leaps forward. Lord, according to your purposes, continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.